0: Uh, Good morning, everyone. My name is Trevin Hoot. It's so wonderful to be here every morning, this morning. Uh, My wife and I have felt very blessed by your support, by your prayers, by the continued friendship that you guys have given us throughout the many years. Um, I don't come and visit you guys enough, and that makes me really sad. But I'm really glad to be here this morning. Thank you for inviting me to preach. To begin this morning, I'm going to tell you guys a fairy tale. So, picture the scene. You are a villager in a rustic European village in France somewhere. You're doing your villager thing. You're butchering. You're baking. You're candlestick making. You're singing about how weird that girl Belle is from Beauty and the Beast is because she reads. Uh, But all of a sudden, you see on the horizon a dragon. He comes, flies over, burns down half the village, and he takes Bruce in a giant castle and amasses a huge pile of gold for himself. Now, there are two knights in land. They come, they hear about the dragon, they want to destroy the dragon. One's knight's name is Sir Galahad, the pure. He is strong, he is brave, he is chivalrous, he is the perfect knight. He wants to save all the village maidens from a terrible fate. Then there's Squire Trelawney's half-willed son, Terence. He is the worst knight in all the land. He is a coward, he's greedy, he does awful things. He hears about the gold that the dragon is standing on, and he wants to take it for himself. So, you're a villager, you hear about this upcoming great showdown. All the, both the knights stand in the field of dra- battle, and they hear the dragon's roar as it flies toward them. Squire Trelawney runs about as fast way about as fast as he possibly can, leaving a small puddle in his wake. But Sir Galahad stands his ground, and he lifts up his sword, and he says, The day may come when the courage of men may fail, but it is not this much. The dragon eats him in one bite. But then the dragon begins to choke on Sir Galahad, and Squire Trelawney runs And he chops off the dragon's head with his dull blade. You villagers are ecstatic. You cheer Squire Trelawney as your hero. You shower him with gold and drinks. You have a huge party in honor. But that night, he's walking home and drunkenly slips and falls into the river and drowns, weighted down by his massive pile of gold. Which night fared better in that story? That was a terrible fairy tale. It doesn't end right. We all know how fairy tales should end, right? The good guy, Sir Galahad, beats the dragon, wins the day, whereas Squire Trelawney is the one that's eaten. But that isn't the way things normally work in this world, is it? Sometimes it seems like the good guys lose and the bad guys win. This morning we're going to be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verses 15 through 18. You can turn with me in your Bibles or we have it printed out in your bulletins for you to read. But just to set the stage, Ecclesiastes was written by the preacher. The preacher interacted with this world in bold, with bold honesty. He saw the same world we saw and he realized that it didn't make sense in a lot of ways. But Ecclesiastes at the same time is a really weird book. We don't often preach from this book because it just sounds so strange to us. The tone is so weird. If we were to think of Ecclesiastes as a member of our family, we would think of him as the sullen teenager that sits away from the family and has one of those black shirts that has the sarcastic phrases on them. He just sounds downright anti-Christian sometimes. He opens the very book off by saying, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Is that a Christian thought? He goes on to describe how he engaged in flagrant self-indulgence. In chapter 2, verse 17, he says, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun is grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. That doesn't sound like a book of the Bible, does it? But, like, is is the preacher someone that we should really be listening to? Is this the kind of wisdom that we need to hear as God's people? I think it is, and Peter would agree with me. This is a part of the canon of Scripture. Peter says that all Scripture is good for reproof and teaching. And the preacher wants to teach us this morning how to live in a world gone haywire. In a world where things don't make sense. In a world where hurricanes destroy whole towns and we give all of our money to that town to fix it up. And then another even worse hurricane goes and destroys our other fellow Americans, Puerto Rico. In a world where there are wildfires in California destroying half the state. In a world where our brothers and sisters just last week in Texas, 26 of them were murdered while worshiping God. That's the kind of world that we live in. That's the kind of world that the preacher saw, and he wondered, God, how can this be? How can we live in a world like this? The book of Ecclesiastes, the genre of it is wisdom literature. And it fits into the same category of literature as Proverbs, and the book of Job, and the book of Song of Solomon. Now, the book of Proverbs, it gives us a lot of general advice about how to live as God's people. How to build a strong community. How to live wisely and righteously in our day-to-day lives. And it also gives us a lot of general benefits for how, what happens when you're righteous. It tells us that the righteous will live better lives. The righteous will receive some sort of reward. The righteous will be, in general, happier. But the book of Proverbs also teaches us... That sometimes the poor are oppressed. Sometimes the righteous don't get the rewards they deserve. Sometimes it seems like things don't make sense. The book of Ecclesiastes is following that same line of thought. It dwells on what do we do when things don't make sense. Um, So let's read this morning about one thing that entirely doesn't make sense. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 15 through 18. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. Oh, uh, For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you open our eyes, open our ears to see what you have written. Open our ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Open our hearts to understand what this confusing passage has to teach your people this morning. Uh, Use my stammering mouth. And speak through me, Lord. Let your truth come out and you receive the glory so that I don't take it for myself, as I'm so prone to do. Bless your word this morning and bless us, your people. In your name we pray. Amen. This is perhaps one of the most confusing passages in the entire Bible. I read many commentaries. All of them said something very different. They all interpreted it as something very, saying completely different things. What on earth could it possibly mean? It almost sounds like the preacher is advocating some sort of middle way between being too righteous and being too wicked. Like you can be somewhat righteous and somewhat wicked, and that's fine. But is that really what the preacher is saying this morning? Our passage comes right at the end of an extended uh, exploration of what death means for us, telling us what. That everyone is going to die. Everyone will experience suffering and death. And that we should always live our lives remembering that that is true. We should never get too comfortable with the lives that we have. Because it all could be taken away from us in the morning. Or in the next morning. Um, And then it goes on to continue to say... That it reveals to us what the most vain thing about our life is. That everyone dies whether we are righteous or whether we are wicked. It's a very uplifting message this morning, isn't it? But it teaches us that our biggest problem as human beings is that death will come for us whether we are righteous or whether we are wicked. We can't stop it, whether we are righteous or whether we are wicked. But it also teaches us something greater than that. It teaches us to look towards a person. It teaches us that the fear of God makes life worth living. We don't live forever, but the fear of God makes life worth living. And so this morning we're going to study two things from this passage. That our righteousness cannot protect us, so we must rest in the God who does. And also, our wickedness cannot sustain us, so we must trust the God who can. Our righteousness cannot protect us, so rest in the God who does. Now, throughout the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, in the book of Deuteronomy... Deuteronomy chapter 28 seems to say this really explicitly. It seems to say that if we do good things, if we live righteously... If we follow God's law perfectly, we will have blessing. We will be blessed because of our good works. It seems like if we are righteous people we should receive a reward for that righteousness. God should especially protect us, and we should have good, happy lives where nothing really bad happens to us. We can see why the prosperity gospel is so appealing and why it often seems to make sense exegetically. But often at the same time, we experience, in our day-to-day experience, it seems like this doesn't work out like that. We all know good people that have gotten cancer, no matter how hard they've prayed. We've heard of innocent people who are murdered by oppressive tyrants. You see that in North Korea? God's people are tortured daily in the Middle East. And the most righteous man who ever lived, Jesus Christ, was killed by wicked people. On the cross, Jesus did not experience the reward for his perfectly righteous life. What do we do with that? How do we reconcile God's seeming promises of a happy life for the righteous people and the fact that righteous people are killed every day? What good is God's promises if they don't seem to benefit us in this life? And the preacher, he sees that what it is. It is a real theological problem. It is something that needs to be dealt with. And the Bible never really gives us a clear answer as to why evil exists in the world. We just know that it's there. But God does something better than explain evil away from us. He does something about it. Um, And so the preacher this morning, he wants to teach us how to live in light of the fact that it sometimes doesn't feel like we get our reward for being righteous. Now, the most confusing thing about this passage is the term overly righteous. That's the thing that all the commentaries disagree on, what, what it means. And so I'm going to teach you what it means because I'm, I guess I'm smarter than everyone else. I'm just kidding. Um, the way I interpret this word overly righteous, I interpret it to mean legalistically Righteous. They are so righteous that they go above and beyond the commands God has given them. And they do that for a very specific purpose. They do that to protect themselves from death. They want to earn God's covenant blessings to his people by being so righteous that God has to give it to them. Now in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were axiomatic for this. The fa- we know the Pharisees because of their legalistic hyper-righteousness. But it would make sense that they were not the only people in Israel's history to pursue something like that. But it's interesting that the preacher uh, sets in contrast this over-righteousness with the fear of God. We would think that the more righteous you are, the more that you trust and obey God, right? But the preacher tends to disagree. Um, And... The Bible also tells us many way, in many ways what the problem with this is. It doesn't work out. It didn't work out for Job. He was the most righteous man that lived up to that point. And yet he still experienced what seemed to be the curse. Jesus talks about it in Luke chapter 13, 4, that those who were crushed in the Tower of Siloam were not any more wicked than anyone else. It would seem that being righteous has no real. It has no real connection with how safe and how secure you are. You cannot control whether you live or die. You cannot control how, if you protect yourself, by your righteousness. How do we live in light of the fact that that's true? Well, the preacher here says not to be overly righteous. And what I think that means is enjoy God's good gifts. Don't cut yourself off. From the good gifts that God has given you out of fear that they might lead you into sin, which would lead you into death. God has given us people many, many good gifts. Alcohol is not a bad thing. The Bible never calls it that. Um, And we shouldn't be afraid of it. Resting is not a bad thing. Even though we might be able to have a Bible study every day of the week. We might be able to do all sorts of good work for the poor. The Bible actually commands us to stop doing that once a day and rest to God's glory. Sex is something beautiful. And yet often we tell our kids that it's something gross and something awful and that we avoid come talking about it all the time because we're afraid that they'll get the wrong ideas. But we have to live and accept God's good gifts or else we're spitting on the very good gifts that God has given to bless His people. And that doesn't make God happy. and that's not a good life. That's not a life worth living. We're calling God's gifts curses. I mean, I like to think of that one super healthy person The one person that runs 20 miles a day who denies themselves all sorts of fats and sugars and tasty things because they want to control their bodies and live forever to be a 100 years old. But they don't know what the next day brings. They could get hit by a bus tomorrow. And then what would their healthy living have brought them? Getting hit by a bus with an empty belly. And that's sad. Now... It also says that we should not be overly wise either. Now, our culture loves being overly wise. Our culture wants to plan for every possible contingency to protect ourselves. Um, But we might drive by, see a homeless person, and say, Kids, if you don't work hard in school, you're going to end up like that homeless person. But in my travels, I've seen refugees with doctorate degrees. In camps. Or maybe when the wind blows and the storm hits and the rain falls, we trust that our house will be built on the solid rock of the most expensive progressive homeowner's insurance. But when the rain falls and the floods came and the waters rise, we find out too late that our homeowner's insurance doesn't cover flood damage. And the worst part is, when you have your friends say smugly, Oh, if you'd have just thought of this one thing, you wouldn't be in trouble right now. You wouldn't be in financial difficulty. You always think that if you just plan for every contingency, every single problem that could arise, then I could be safe, but we always manage to miss that one important thing. And the problem with that is that by, Jesus promises to us that by being wise and be, or by being anxious, by toiling and fretting, we will not add a single hour to our life. Our wisdom doesn't grant us eternal life. As much as we try to control it, we cannot control what happens to us day by day. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. As good of an insurance we have, as much education as we have, as hard as we work, tomorrow we may die. What, how do we live in light of that? Well, first off, we have to trust the God that protects His children. If we trust in Christ, God has declared us to be His children. And He's the God who cares for His children. He's not the kind of God that when we ask for bread will give us a stone. He's the God that knows exactly what we need before we we even need it. He's the God who answers prayers that we don't even know that we pray. We need to trust him that our righteousness is not the things that will save us. It's God's kindness and mercy that saves us. The fear of God is set in contract, contrast to hyper-righteousness because the fear of God trusts God, accepts His good gifts, and lives day by day on His promise. We may not have been given the grace and the finances to cover every single problem that might arise throughout the week, but God, has, God will provide for that in, when it comes. That's why Jesus in his Lord's Prayer says, give us today our daily bread. Trust God day by day to sustain you. And also, don't judge those who have had disaster fall upon them. Don't be so smug when you see one of your friends or one of your brothers and sisters who are in the midst of tragedy. To say, oh that can never happen to me because I have planned for just that occasion. God has a way to humble people, us in that way. So if our righteousness cannot protect us, rest in the God who can. But our wickedness can also not sustain us. So we must trust the God who can. You know, it might be tempting to say if our righteousness cannot protect us, what's the point of even pursuing righteousness? Why not be wicked? Why not take what I can for myself? Why not kill someone who threatens to hurt me? Because, like, Why not murder my enemies? Because then I can just be safe and I don't have to worry about them hurting me. Why not leave, leave my life, wife who makes me unhappy and pursue another wife? Um, because then I can be happy and take everything that I want. Maybe money is tight right now. I have all these student loans that I need to pay off. Um, I... Want to make sure I have enough money in the bank accounts for the next month just in case something bad happens, and I withhold my tithe from God. Josh did not tell me to say this, so. But that money isn't ours, that's God's money. Holding, ourself, holding our life that God has given to us to ourselves is not the way to live. Stealing and killing and taking life from others is not the source of life. God is the source of life. We cannot steal that life from others. Our culture doesn't like to believe that it is God who blesses us. Our culture likes to believe that all good things come from my hard work, from the things that I can get to myself. It does not recognize that every single good gifts, our families, the friends that God has put in our path, the opportunities that God has given us, the money that we've inherited, uh, the good things about our culture which God has sustained, those things are not things that we have earned. Those things, even those things are gifts. Even my attitude is a gift. If it wants to to pursue God, that is even a gift. If we want to pursue God. All those things are gifts from God and not things that we build from ourselves. And so we have no right to call things that are God's blessings, ours own and ours alone to keep. And at the same time, our culture is very comfortable Our culture does not want to think of God as being a judge of the wicked. Because our culture likes the way things are going right now. We don't want some sort of outside person judging what we are doing. But for many people around the world, they need to know that God is a judge because they have experienced real oppression. God is our judge and that is a good thing. Sometimes we forget in our postmodern Western society that the fear of the Lord means that the wicked should actually be afraid of God. Because God will judge our actions. God is the one who will judge our hearts. Will we stand before the judgment of God? And for God's children, when we sin, when we pursue wickedness, we are cutting ourselves off from the life of God. We are cutting ourselves off from God's blessing because God does not honor sin. Now, at the same time, God is also the God who sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. God blesses the entire world regardless of whether or not they are righteous or not. Not a saving blessing necessarily. But it is a blessing of life. And that is strictly because God is kind. We do not deserve to live each and every day because of our wickedness. So since God is a source of life, we cannot get life from elsewhere. If we sin, we cannot expect God to bless it. If we hold our tithe back and put it in a bank, we cannot expect God to bless that amount that we hold back. Have you ever pondered what it meant that unless the Lord builds a house, the house will not, the laborers labor in vain? Do you want that amount of money to be your only gift from God? Now God has given us all good things. But when we are disobedient and pursue wickedness, we, bl- we waste those good things. As I said earlier, alcohol is good, but drunkenness poisons us. As I said earlier, sex is beautiful, but sex outside of marriage is not something that God, God intends for His creation and isolates us. Pornography is sad and makes us lonely. Sex is meant to build up intimacy, and yet pornography isolates us away from each other and away from our spouses. Wickedness destroys us. It turns us into something that isn't quite human. Selfishness cannot protect us. Squire Trelawney abandoned his friend on the battlefield, and yet he still did not live forever. Forever. Now, for me, in seminary, I could be a pretty prideful person. I answer or I ask a good question in class, and my professor says, that's a good question. I'm like, yeah, it was. I give wise counsel to my friends, and they're like, man, you're so wise. I'm like, you're right. <laughs> I help widows and refugees in their distress, and they call me and say, Trevin, you've been such a blessing to me. And I'm like... Thanks. I like to, and I sometimes dwell on this. I think in my heart, man, people must think that I'm pretty awesome. My friends must think that I'm pretty great. Coming back to Baton Rouge, I think, man, I hope everybody here thinks that I'm really cool. I hope everybody really likes my sermon and thinks that I'm wise. But that's pride. Pride. And as good as it feels to indulge in it, and as hard as it is to say no to it, I like to call it poisonous pride candy. It tastes like candy ingesting it, but it poisons my soul. and cuts me off from the source of life. And I'm in real danger there. Because Jesus says, if you do your good work so that other people will notice you, that is the extent of my reward. Do I want poison to be the extent of my reward? Something that cuts me off from God? Something that takes away real blessing? Do I want the good feels I get from feeling awesome about this advice to be the extent of the blessing God gives me from that? No. You guys have been helping me through seminary. Do you want the extent of your help to be poison for me? No. That would be awful. But when we take the blessings that God has given us, and when we're selfish, and when we're wicked with the good things that God has given us, that's exactly what we're doing. We're killing ourselves with the blessing that God has given us. We're choking on the delicious feast that God has prepared for us. And that is sad. So as God's children, we need to repent of our wickedness. Now, this passage says, don't be overly wicked. Does that mean we can be somewhat wicked? That's a good question. I mean, perhaps he was advocating some sort of middle way between righteousness and wickedness. Well, the thing is, that's Stoic philosophy, and this guy lived a long time before those people. He wasn't one of them. He was saying something entirely different from the Stoic philosophers. The preacher here does not say that we can lie as long as it makes us happy and doesn't seem to hurt anybody else. He never has any good things to say about pursuing wickedness or pursuing foolishness. But that being said, I think we do need to be somewhat wicked. I think we should be somewhat wicked in the way that Jesus was somewhat wicked. No, Jesus was not wicked. I'm not a heretic. That's not what I've learned from seminary. But... To the hyper-righteous Pharisees, they thought he was wicked because he didn't follow their rules. He didn't didn't stay within the hedge that they built around himself. He allowed his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath because he knew that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. He came eating and drinking and people called him a glutton and they called him a drunkard. But he wasn't. He enjoyed the good gifts that God gave his people, the covenant blessings... He lived his life enjoying every minute of it. Because he lived his life in the light of joy of his Father. And if that's what we mean by wickedness, embracing the gifts that God gives us, then we should pursue that. But we shouldn't pursue actual wickedness. Instead, we must fear the God who gives all good things. We cannot take good things from our others. That's what wickedness does. But we rely on God to fill us with life. We rely on God's good gifts to give us real and lasting joy. God does not tell us not to be proud and not to be lustful because he doesn't want us to feel good about ourselves or to have fun. God tells us not to pursue those things because he knows that those things lead only to death. God t- doesn't tell us to give our tithes and to give to the poor because He doesn't want His people to have nice things. He does it because He loves the poor and He loves His people more than He loves their stuff. God doesn't tell us uh, to, pursue, to pursue righteousness because He wants us to lead boring lives. Righteous living is not boring. It is what life should be. It was the life that we were made to pursue. And that's where real life and real joy comes from. We may even die in our righteousness. But we die knowing that we've lived a life of joy. And also, we're called to repent of our wickedness. You may have been pursuing each and every one of those sins that I was talking about. You may be pursuing wickedness in your heart. But know this morning that that is not the way that leads to life. That way leads to death. And you can actually be free from that. No matter what the overly righteous think of you, when Christ forgives you, you are truly forgiven. And your past can be put behind you. There is real freedom and real life In trusting Christ. And He invites you to that this morning. And so this morning we know that we can't know why God allows evil in this world. As good a pundit as you are, you do not know why God allowed that gunman in that church near San Antonio last week. There is real evil in the world. God didn't explain it away, but he did do something better. He is doing something about it. He is ending evil. He will defeat death. Our two heroes at the beginning, they could not kill the dragon. We need a new kind of hero. We need a greater knight. We need our king, who is Jesus. Jesus is the greater Solomon. He is the greater sage who taught his people how to live. He is the great wise man who taught his people how to enjoy God's blessings. How to live in God's love. How to care for the poor. How to talk to people. And how to live true in light of God's covenants. But that's not the only thing that Jesus was. He is our great high priest who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for God, taking care of his wrath. And he is our king who leads us, guides his people, and who represents us before the Father as our righteousness. Christ died so that we can be free. Now, our righteousness cannot save us. Our righteousness cannot protect us from death. But Christ's righteousness Saves us. Our wickedness cannot sustain our lives. Our wickedness cannot bring us true life. Our wickedness will not bring eternal life. But the one wicked act. That the, uh, that the Jewish people of the first century did. Against Jesus. Killing the only innocent man who ever lived. That act brought about the redemption of all of God's people. Jew and Gentile alike. And Christ... Lived the perfect righteous life, but that did not even protect him from death. But God, in His love, brought him past, brought Jesus past death, past death to the resurrection. And He is offering us this morning to share in that resurrection, to share in that inheritance by trusting in Christ, and so that we no longer have to fear death. That death comes, from the right, comes to both the righteous and the wicked is a real problem. But for those who trust Christ, we don't have to fear death anymore. We are safe. And our children can be safe. And even those who are suffering can be, are safe. Knowing that there is a new life and a new world on the other side of it. So this morning we learned that our righteousness cannot protect us so we must rest in the God who does. We learned that our wickedness cannot sustain us so we must trust the God who can. But most of all we found that the fear of God makes life worth living. So the preacher before Jesus' time he was confused by all the chaos in the world. He didn't know how to explain it. But yet he still trusted that God will one day judge the world and he didn't have to have it figured out. But we have an advantage of the preacher. We know who that judge will be. Jesus is the judge who will judge wickedness. Jesus is the one who will defeat evil in the end. He is the king who will destroy that dragon. And he will end death once and for all. You trust Him. Let us pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You that You are a God that we can trust. Thank You that You are a God who provides all good things. Thank You that You are a God who wants us to live, who wants us people to live this life and then to live forevermore. Thank You that when we're suffering, we know that even if this suffering leads to death, There's life on the other side. Lord, help us to trust you with that this morning. And most of all, help us to trust you with that in the life of our children, who we so often tend to want to control. Help us to trust you in light of the fact in that, help us to trust you in that even when we see suffering in this world, knowing that you are a God who's still on your throne. Help us to live within your joy and make our lives worth living. Amen.